we've talked about cultural appropriation. We've talked about who gets to be an Indian. We've talked about indigenous identity. And now we're going to talk about boarding and residential schools. Tonight on Body Talk, with your host, Dr. J. Hang on.
got frightened when I was a little girl when the when the principal used to beat up beat up the other children like boys. The boys got the most uh, beating. They used to call it bench party and it was usually done after supper and that's where I got frightened because I saw blood. I remember when we had a shower. Um, we, uh, you know, you only have to show me how to shower and clean and wash myself, how to wash my private and, my, you know, private parts of your body. You only have to show a kid once or twice at the most, but not every day, you know, and have uh, the supervisor come in there and, and basically take advantage of you, you know. I just remember arriving there and donning new clothes and, of course, getting a haircut and sitting in a classroom and being with other girls and witnessing my brother get punched by the supervisor. My name is Alice Little Deer. I'm 78 years old. I spent uh, about eight years in residential school. My name is Raymond Mason. I'm 62 years old, and I attended residential school for 12 years. I'm Madeline Dion Stout. I'm 62 years old. I'm from the Kehiwan First Nation in Alberta. I attended Blue Quills Residential School for 36 consecutive months. That would be three years. In order to educate the children properly, we must separate them from their families. Some people may say that this is hard, but if we want to civilize them, we must do that. A federal cabinet minister, 1883. I remember them taking me away from my mother and uh, my stepfather. And uh, I can hear them telling my mom that uh, that was the best thing for me. You know, and uh, that not to worry, I, I would be looked after. Our parents uh, didn't want to worry us unduly uh, and tell us and warn us that we are going to be separated for a long, long time with barely a visit. I see him come around, Indian agent, in a boat with the principal, then collect some children from the reserve. Mm -hmm. Then he would come back again, come and take some more. So the next day, uh, I woke up with hundreds of total strangers, my size, my age, and, uh, and not knowing, you know, what are they doing with all of us here? Why are so, there so many of us here, you know? And that's where a lot of th my whole life really started to change. Because uh, I got uh, strapped, I got uh, you know beaten up for speaking my own native tongue. I even had my tongue pulled out and pinched, you know. My strongest memory there is uh, when when the little girl died beside me. She would have been she must have been about six. Um, I was scared. Uh, 
why the parents were not there. That's what I was scared about. And I knew they would have a, they wouldn't feel comfortable for not being there when their daughter's dying. And do you know why they weren't there? They were never notified. Indian children in the residential schools die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared towards a final solution of our Indian problem. Duncan Campbell Scott, Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. At that time, they never told us that our sisters were across the hallway. And uh, I didn't know that for the longest time. Then I spotted my sister, Nora, and uh, I was so glad and so hysteric. And I went running to her and I leached onto her, you know, and just hugged her. And I, I was just shaking, like, you know, and terrified. And, and I was wondering why she was pushing me away. I didn't realize that we weren't supposed to know that we both lived in the same place, same, and we weren't allowed to speak to each other, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And I can remember the principal uh, grabbing a hold of me by the hand, you know, and, uh, and I was jumping off the floor like that, and he stripped me, and he started whacking me with a, a long webbed uh, a strap. He was setting an example that, you know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. Like, and all the other boys are watching, and the girls are still going through. And um, their education must consist not merely training of the mind, but of a weaning from the habits and feelings of their ancestors, and the acquirements of the language, art and customs of civilized life. Edgerton Ryerson, 1847 Report for Indian Affairs. Visits from my parents were very rare, but I do recall one visit when uh, my mother and father came. And um, I remember specifically my mother's red tam, that splash of color. I remember her getting out of the wagon and I was crying already watching them because I was missing them already. They hadn't even walked through the door yet of the residential school, but I was missing them already. And when they were actually leaving, I cried until my nose bled. And, and you, you learn pretty quick after getting those kind of beatings. Not strapping, it's, it's literally beatings, you know. And uh, ever since that day, I tried to run away. And uh, I made friends with a guy by the name of Donald Atkinson from Rosa River First Nation. And uh, <clears throat> we planned uh, you know, to take off. And when we got caught, we paid for dearly. You know, Not only did the RCMP give us a licking, but the boys that were, the bigger boys that was helping them chase us down. Were you angry at your parents that they made you go to school? Sometimes. Sometimes I would think about them and I get mad for all giving me here 
sending me over there where the, all the bad treatment is. And, uh, I felt sad. My first uh, two boys went, and then a couple of years after, the next two boys went, and so on, as they got older, yeah. I told them to be strong. I had always told them to be strong, to be able to take it like, uh, like the other children. So you sent 11 kids to residential school? Mm -hmm. How many of them do you think were strong through that? Uh, none of them. None of them. What about your children? How do you think it affected them, being in residential Well, school? like I said, uh, a little bit crazier. Then they went, then before they went to school, they, their mind was a little bit more intact, staying at home with us. They knew how to uh, hunt ducks, and they knew how to fish, and they knew how to snare rabbits and pick blueberries. Today, you don't see that. And you think that's the school? Yeah. Everything destroyed in our world. Mm -hmm. We didn't bother white people. White people bothered me. Indian culture is a contradiction in terms. They are uncivilized. The aim of education is to destroy the Indian. Nicholas Flood David Report, 1879. There are three reasons why I think residential schools are a blot on the Canadian landscape. One is that we became strangers in our home and native land. Two is that um, nurturing relationships between parents and children were severed. Um, residential schools were a frontal attack on parenthood. Three is that it added to the mental stress, our mental stress in a very real way. My name is Michael Loft. I'm from Ganawagi. I'm 55 years old, okay, and uh, my dad attended residential school for 11 continuous years in Spanish uh, Ontario. He says, and once he, he told me a story where they were so bored, they were in, the, I think, the cafeteria, and they would just, they would just walk in a circle, you know, because they couldn't just go run around, you know, willy-nilly all over the, the residential school just because school was out. They had to be controlled, I guess, had to be contained, and uh, so they would walk in circles, you know, in, the, in the, the cafeteria, round and round and round and round to deal with their boredom. My name's Lorena Fontaine. I'm 38 years old, and both my parents and grandparents went to residential school. I was at a conference that my mom was speaking at. She was giving the keynote address, 
and she started talking about her residential school experience during her her speech, and uh, she start, and that's how I found out. Well, I was, of course, um, I was shocked and appalled, and I just felt so terrible for her. I felt frozen when I was listening to her. And it wasn't until after she finished speaking that I started thinking about our family life. I started thinking about um, the abuse that was very um, prevalent when I was a child. And I started putting um, connections together. He never knew when he was going to get hit in residential school. That's the thing. So it was, he lived like in fear of getting hit. You break a rule, you get whacked, you know. Um, so it was, it was unpredictable, you know, you couldn't, uh, you could try to learn the rules as best as you could, but I mean, you're a kid, you know, you'd, you'd mess up and whack, you know. So there was that unpredictability that he brought home too. And, and the same thing with us, we, we didn't know what was gonna happen, you know, next. So it was scary. I was raised by parents who never had a childhood and they didn't have any parents as role models. So we were vulnerable children, and um, a lot of us were abused ourselves as young children. And um, I also realized at that point that um, one of the people who abused me in my family had been a residential school survivor, um, a family member, and I, I understood why now, why I was, um, why I was abused. The great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and to assimilate the Indian people in all respects. Sir John A. Macdonald, May 2nd, 1887. He, he got out, you know, like everybody gets out at, uh, at 16. And um, he, he eventually made his way to uh, Aguizasne, uh, to his home. And um, he told me that he, he couldn't connect with them. He couldn't connect because he couldn't speak the language. Uh, he didn't understand the culture. So he couldn't take it, you know. He was frustrated. He was going nowhere. So he turned him, he went, he went back to the residential school for one, one more year uh, because it seemed like that was home now. That was home. And that's where he could, you know, they, they spoke his language and so, so that's where he went. I grew up not knowing my language, and in fact, I kind of felt a bit ashamed about our language and our identity because it seemed like they were, meaning my parents and my aunts and uncles, were ashamed too in some way because they didn't want to talk about it and they didn't want to share with us about who we were. There was a lot of fear. I think the fear the fear uh, that they put in him, the terror that they put in him. I mean, he, he, he managed to bring that with him. I mean, it went into our family, you know. And I learned terror and fear and all that uh, as well as a, as a child. I put fear in my sons too. That's all I knew, you know. Uh, when they were doing something that was uh, right, I, I would put fear in them, you know. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. 
Duncan Campbell Scott, Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs, January 1st, 1920. Generally, the survivors of residential school do not commit suicide any more than the general population. Uh, okay. It's the children of the residential school survivors who commit suicide in incredibly high numbers. You know, six to seven times, you know, the provincial average. Okay. It might just take one person to start talking about it or perhaps a family to start talking about the fact that there is abuse and the reason why there's that abuse is because of the residential school experience that, you know, we're not abusive people by trade. We're not, uh, we weren't born that way. Um, and to be able to, I think, I think families need to be able to realize that they're not alone, that none of us are alone anymore, that we have each other and, and that it's okay to start talking about it. We don't have the monopoly on pain and hurt, um, but we have and have carried a disproportionate share of it over time. And I, I would really like us to move forward, um, not to erase our memory of who we are, because residential school is certainly a part of who we are. I'd like us all to be a part of a team that really makes a lasting difference for not only residential school survivors, but the other little children who are having difficulties today.
Gentlemen, a round of applause. Ladies and gentlemen, our Northern Buckskin Adult Women Contest Final. So this is what we're going to do. Kelsey, Kelsey, we're going to go the same way. Two straight and two side step. Okay, so we're back at uh, Northern Creek for a two-star straight. Uh, Steve, Joel, Marla. Two-star straight, Northern Creek. Final two, Northern Cree, showtime.
My name is Roberta Hill. I'm from the uh, Mohawk Nation, Grand River Territory. I'm a survivor of the Mohawk Institute Residential School. I was here as a student from 1957 to January 1961, and I came here with six of my family. A lot of bad memories here, that's for sure. These are really familiar to me. I used to play on these, on the girls' side. I was playing down in the basement on the girls' side, and my mother had come up to the visiting area, and the little kids had said, your mother's here. Do you want to go see her? And I, and I ran. I ran. But when I got to the doorway over there, I froze right in front of the stairs, and I couldn't move. And I just stood there crying and crying and crying. And the more I cried, the, the worse it got, and I could see myself. I could actually, like an out-of-body experience, I could see this little girl crying. And it was me, but I, and the little girl said, well, if you don't, don't you love your mother? Don't you want to see your mother? And I, you know, and I did. I really did. She said, she's going to leave you. You know, she's going to leave if you don't go see her. So at that time, I knew that she would go. Then I, things just kind of came back, and I was just like tears. I just took off running up those stairs. And I went and sat on my mother. And at that time, all I did was cry. I just cried and cried. And it wasn't because I didn't want to see her. I loved her. It was just so hurtful to have to part with her again. Because my mother was, like, she was a really good mother, you know. Not much uh, to say about good times here. They're all overridden by the bad. The bad is enormous. There's a tremendous amount of evil that went on here. So the whole institution itself was run by fear. So it was very regimented, more like a military style. You lined up for everything. You lined up for your meals. You lined up to go to school. You lined up to go to church. It was just like that, follow that routine. And you would be okay if you followed and didn't break the rules, you know, so you just, you learn to follow the rules. I didn't have the freedom as a, as a child or as a young teenager. I was always kind of under the supervision of somebody. But we got up about six o'clock and we were sent down to the, called the playroom. And it was always cold in, in, in the basement. I, uh, early in the morning, still a lot of chill in the air, and yet they put us in a big cement room, and we had to keep warm however we could. We learned all kinds of farm work. I, I worked on a farm so long that I picked up a certain discipline to, where hard work would get me where I'm going. And I think at some point there was somebody here that, I don't know if it was a kid or a supervisor, told me I would never leave here, you know? So that really stuck in my mind that I was gonna be in this place forever. You're isolated. All you see is this world around you. This is it. That was my world. I didn't learn about all those other things that were going on until my adult life. I didn't know there was all those other residential schools. 
I don't think anybody in Canada knew that much. So it was kept very secretive. And yet when you start to look at every residential school across Canada, you find the same things. And I came to the Mohawk Institute when I was about six or seven years old. And I spent six years here. Um, I was picked up on an Indian reserve at Moravian Town. And, uh, walking on a road. We were going to visit my grandmother one day, a nice July day back in 1955. There was four of us and one girl, my sister. And we came over that little rise over there and we were heading there down here and a black car pulled alongside of us. And we didn't know who it was at the time. The driver said, would you like a ride there? We said, no, we didn't know who they were. We kept on walking and they kept pace with us in their car. And they kept trying to get us to get in. And we refused for a couple hundred yards that way. And they offered us some ice cream and jello at the restaurant in Thamesville. And I had ice cream. After we finished, we all loaded back up into the car. But they never went back the way they came. They went around, away from the reserve. I fell asleep. And I never woke up until we were coming up to the Mohawk Institute. But after I got old enough, I realized I was kidnapped. Like I said, my dad didn't know the Department of Indian Affairs and the churches. They didn't care how they got the children here. February about two years ago. I was on the board of sessions that are at uh, Chisholm United Church and Chisholm Township. It's about five miles out of here. And uh, my first board of sessions meeting, in fact, and uh, there was two other members and the minister and myself. And the minister was going through the agenda that we were to talk about that day and she mentioned the residential school system. And all of a sudden I started to shake and broke down crying. I had no idea why. Uh, I didn't know what this was about at all. Uh, from that, I ended up uh, going to my doctor and uh, for some help for depression, and he referred me to a psychologist in North Bay, and took her probably 20 minutes to determine that biggest part of my problem was from that incident 50 years earlier. I was uh, stationed there in the RCMP. Uh, we had a territorial jail there, which most times I was a jail guard at night. 
And uh, this day shift I happened to be assigned to whatever came in through the door. It would be sometime between November of 64 and April of 65. On a day shift I was assigned to assist an agent from the residential school system to pick up two children from a family in Fort Smith of the Northwest Territories. I went to the door of this home and the, the woman who lived there knew why we were there. Uh, they knew that she knew that her two, two daughters were being sent to residential schools. The mother was crying, both children were crying, probably six and eight years old. And I took the six-year-old from her arms, actually, and uh, turned them over to the agent. He jumped in his car and took off to the airport, and that was basically the end of it. I, I saw, never saw them. I don't remember the children's names, but I'll never forget their cries. At the time, I didn't like the idea of taking kids away from their family. And it bothered me. And of course, being in the RCMP, I had no alternative, couldn't complain about it. The only thing I knew about the Indian residential schools was uh, a place where they could get formal education. And uh, I didn't see any problems with it. Uh, since then, I've come to realize what they were about. And uh, I've known differently now. And that's part of the story that I want to tell. It took up maybe five minutes of my life. And uh, I buried it back in 64, 65. And about 50 years later, it came back to haunt me here in Powassan. sitting at this at this very spot I, I'm not sure if it was exactly the same table but we were sitting at this very spot um, at a at a board meeting um, you remember Ron you were on the board at the time and and the board at that time had decided that they wanted to study this book called a healing journey for us all and part of that uh, took us into residential schools well, let me, let me say first clearly that I think the residential school um, history within Canada is one of the, the, the greatest tragedies, if not the greatest tragedy, in our whole um, history as a country. Um, it's it, the damage that's been done um, to so many lives and the damage that it continues to be done and that will be felt gen generationally uh, is, is just, it's beyond one, it's hard to even take it in. Residential schools are schools that were set up by the government of Canada 
and there are other countries that have the same thing, but it was a policy that was put into place to bring all as many Indigenous people as possible into these schools to educate them into the European way of life, to take you away from your culture, your language, all your traditions, and that's what it's about. In order to sever those ties in your culture and your language, they had to separate children from families and communities. We wore uniforms, you all dressed the same, you had your hair cut the same, you were all one. And it was to assimilate us, to make sure we didn't have any Indian left in us when we finally left here. They took us to the church every Sunday. We had to say prayers and things like that. We weren't allowed to talk in our language. We had to speak English, but it wasn't indoctrination. Like they didn't put us in one room and teach us, indoctrinate us all day long or anything like that. It's just the way, the routine of the place. It was in, it was in the routine that you, you didn't speak anything but English. Uh, you went to white man's school. You went to white man's church. You wore the white man's clothes. All those were built in. It wasn't a classroom lecture kind of thing. It was, it was ingrained in, in the system. It was about 11 years. They, they it was taken from them. There was no mother, no father figures. Nobody said good night or come and see you if you were sick or something. Nobody looked after you except that they put us in a big playroom similar to this dining room. And we sort of looked after ourselves. What was going on across this country that so many children were being taken? So many children were being put into residential schools. And my thing is, if, if they were such a wonderful school, they were models, everybody should have had them. Non-Native Europeans, everybody should have had a residential school. Not just one race of people, it's a very racist policy, you know. But that's what the intent was. It was to kill the Indian and the child, and pretty much they've done it. So you get punished for being who you are. It's a school where you were punished for the for the least of infractions. Eh? The the punishments were were uh, severe and punishment for things you never did. You never did them. I, 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 I don't think I ever did anything wrong that would deserve a strap, never. And yet you got it. You never knew what, 
when you went over the line, they let you know by giving you a beating. Beating sounds so simple, but it, it was more than that. It was terror eh, that accompanied each beating. Fort Albany, when you have children put in an electric chair for entertainment or for punishment, those are crimes against humanity. And yet, different things, and I've heard of um, other guys having electric currents. And they brought us into a place they called the press room, where most of the beatings went on. Eh? And we went in there one at a time and, and got a good shellac and with a leather, leather strap. Eh? Like everybody's was afraid of it, but everybody knew they were going to get it sooner or later, right? Just remember them crying. There was a lot of crying in this place, a lot of tears. And yet we find out it was like thousands upon thousands of children that were being abused. Despite the beatings and the ferocity of some of the beatings, we still defied the authority to run away. The boys' side housed over 60 boys, despite this number. Each of us were lonely beyond despair. From within, we each had our own battles to fight. We were lost, lonely, scared, and confused. But our biggest battle was to keep our secrets. Our lives were shrouded in secrecy. No one could know that we all collectively knew that kids were being raped and molested in large numbers, sodomized by beasts. No one could know. No one would ever know. Sodom and Gomorrah had to be a nicer place, so we tried to escape. The carnal sin, what irony. Those caught were ferociously and relentlessly beaten with the leather machinery belts carried by all the staff, including the principal, the cannon. Beaten until their screams echoed out to the yards and in among the barns, down the laneway and up the city streets. Beaten until there was silence. That was the scariest. Despite this, we ran away. I believe each of us tried to at least once to escape that boy's prison, the hellish place with demons all about. Yeah, it's open. There's the boilers. At that far end is where I got molested time and time again. Day after day, boy, did I ever wish somebody would come by or somebody would miss me somehow. And nobody ever came. And I just came out of there feeling so dirty, rotten, low as you can imagine. And I thought every kid out there knew that I had what happened to me. But I think it all happened to them because none ever bothered me. None ever asked me what happened in there. So I think we all got it at one point or other. But it was a nasty, dirty place. Mm. 
but here's where I got molested right here. I remember standing against this wall there and he had his way with me. And I was just about that high. It's a time in my life when I felt so dirty and so, so all alone. When he had me down in the boiler room and he took my clothes off. And I was just standing there, a little guy, just disgusted at what he was doing. I think it's very, very possible that children did die here, but we'll never know. It's just I've heard too many different stories for it to be all lies. If they're not buried here, they're probably buried somewhere on the property. And it's just one of those things that in time we may come across it. But this, this we can investigate. If there's any truth to it, if there's anything in there, just, just from the people that I know, from the survivors that I know that say that, yeah, they remember this being something. And you don't just put a window at the bottom of a basement for any, for no reason. I like finding old friends, and Winnie is what I know her by from the residential school, the Mohawk Institute. When we first went in there, we were, my sister and I were separated uh, into groups, and I had one older girl that took me under her wing, and my sister Dawn, Winnie looked after her. Well, I don't, you know, when I was there, I don't even know, remember going there. I don't even remember the people picking me up out of my home. I don't remember that. All I know, I was just there. So then I met this this older um, person, well, this older girl. She kind of took care of me when I was growing up. And she told me when she's ready to leave, because she was in 12, 13, maybe 14, she said that she was going to ask her mother to come and get me and take, she to take me home to be her little sister. But that didn't happen because she, she, um, because she got hurt. She got hurt, hurt, hurt bad. I think, I think somebody hit her on a tree. And I don't know. I, I think she died, but I'm not really sure. But I don't know. Well, anyway, I've been able to, to say in the last few years that they killed her. And I was there. I saw what happened to her.
sometimes I used to dream of her. She would come to me in a dream, but it, it, it hurts to talk about it. Because I remember her when she used to piggyback me on her, her back, and we'd run and play. And, and when I got hurt, she'd pick me up, and she'd give me a hug and tell me not to cry. Like, oh, I wish she'd be doing that now. After they smashed her in the tree. You know that sound? Sometimes you can hear it on TV on the murder shows. That sound, that's a sound. Even if a glass breaks today, I'll, I'll scream. And then sometimes my family gets mad at me. I said, well, I can't help it. I said, that's it's the sound. That's, it scares me and makes me yell loud like that. The scene is a drowning child who just shortly before was flailing away with his head above water in a raging river. He can swim, but the river is swift and unrelenting. He slips under the surfaces briefly trying to catch another life-saving breath, but he knows he's going under for good. What terror is wrought upon the child's mind, no one can imagine. Those thoughts will go down with him. The want to live is seen above, in the light on the surfaces of the river. As he slowly sinks, his hair is silky and wavy, his arms still move, ever moving so slowly and reaching for no purpose except that his will tells him to reach up. The lighted surface fades and his body has no more movement except that of the current. He tumbles lifelessly along the bottom and into oblivion. I left thinking that I'd come back one day and attack those people that, that attacked me and I, they didn't just attack me they I think they attacked everybody but um, I wrote a book called Dark Legacy and uh, ever since I wrote that book I I don't have this great desire to go back anymore and beat them up eh? I I uh, I haven't forgiven them but the they're not around to forgive. When I realize the effect that this type of government administration had on thousands of people in my time, uh, it disgusts me that uh, I'm a Canadian and I always thought Canada was the greatest country in the world. And I'm ashamed to say I'm Canadian because of what my government has done. 
the government wanted access to mineral rights, mining, lumbering, fisheries, all natural resources that Canada has. And they all are on native land, of course. They were here first. So the government, I guess, determined that rather than go to war with the natives, they would eliminate them. And I know from my own experience, people that I've known, they were raised by whites in the residential schools, so when they were finished there, their parents didn't accept them because they weren't native. And the white community did not accept them because they were native. So these people, knew 150,000 children, grew up in limbo with no roots, no background, and no place they could call home. I knew ahead of time when I was going to leave. I went to school that day, and, and it was the last day of school in the summer. Everything seemed brighter then. Eh? The grass seemed greener, the sky was bluer. And uh, it was just a great day. You come home and they're like, you're a stranger. I'm a stranger to them, but they're a stranger to me too. So I had to go find who my relatives were. How was I connected to this community? I knew where I came from. I didn't know that, but I just didn't know how I fit in. 150,000 people, or children, were taken from their families. And as a result of that, seven generations of native people grew up with no roots. This is my friend Carol Cucci, whom I've known for a few years and uh, appreciate her friendship and, and what kind of things she can tell us about her First Nations. So having my father, my aunt, and my uncles um, gone to residential school, my father never discussed his upbringing. He was silent. The home that we lived in was silent around who he was and how he was raised. So prior to the age of 30, I had no idea or no understanding of what had happened to my family. And I knew that there was something up, like there was something wrong, but I didn't know what that was. When I was finding all of these things about residential school when I was 30, and my father had already passed away, my mother was still alive, and I started asking my, my aunt questions, it began to, I began to realize how strange everything was. And it began to see what those schools did and what the effect that we had and why my brothers and I had struggled so much with our emotional life. This was wrong, to take children away from their parents and herd them into a school against their will. It just blew me away. And then when Ron, when you had the courage to stand up and say that this was wrong and that you 
knew it was wrong when it happened. Instead of standing up and said, I witnessed this and it didn't look that bad. I can't tell you what that does for people. I really can't. And I don't care what bad things you might have done in your life, Ron. I know it wasn't a whole lot because you're a good person. <laughs> they were erased by that. They were completely erased by that. But what you don't hear about is what happens to adult people when their kids are ripped away. And those kids come back broken, but they come back broken to, to adults that are insane. And that's the other half. So nobody is okay. survivors to stand up for a moment and be here with us. Survivors, please stand. The children and the grandchildren of survivors, please stand up as well. Things began to change when the survivors of the residential school experience went to court beginning in the 1980s, uh, but not really successful until the mid-1990s when the courts finally ruled that they could sue the government for the abuses that went on in the schools and the churches as well. The root of the TRC is in survivors themselves. Survivors said, we demand attention and we demand recognition for what it is and was that we experienced in the residential schools. I had a problem with, I had a hearing problem. I was mocked. I was teased. I was picked on. Sometimes I felt that I can't function. I was hurting so bad inside. But on the outside, especially for my children, I tried to be strong. We were the recipient of their most private moments in their life often. And we, as listeners, had to be there for them because we weren't just representing the commission, we were actually representing the hearing of the entire country. Well, as a commissioner for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, listening to the stories of residential school survivors uh, was difficult emotionally very challenging but uh, there's no doubt that uh, when they cried often we did as commissioners we always made it a point to repeat back to the survivors what it was that they had told us because we wanted them to know that we had heard them and that we believed them
before anything happened to me, I want to apologize to my family for what I put them through. I could, I could tell my grandchildren, I could tell my great-grandchildren that I love them. But with my own children, I can't. It hurts. It hurts me to think about what I missed. It was a very um, emotional, very emotional time because the more you got into it, the more the more things started to come up about residential school that you would start to remember, and then you'd listen to everybody and. It was a very, very difficult time. So I was involved right from that, right from when the lawsuit started. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was asked to assist the survivors to move from an era of being victims of the residential school experience to becoming um, uh, involved in a process of establishing a better relationship with the government and with the churches. The story of the truth of residential schools in this country is a story about the resilience of children. They have supported me in this work, but at great loss to the relationships we could have had, and which we will now try to recapture. residential school survivors. We awake in Canada. This is not only about resilience. There's a whole lot of truth that has been shared. It's also about reconciliation. And there, there's not going to be any truth and reconciliation in my time or in your time. It's, it's going to take two or three, four generations uh, to work all this out, to get it in the history books and have it become commonplace, that the guy next door knows what happened. The future of Canada will students be told that this is not an integral part of everything we are as a country, everything we are as Canadians. That is a promise we make right here, all of us together. It was the, the closing ceremonies of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had a uh, five-kilometer walk from Gatineau, Quebec to uh, the City Hall in Ottawa. There was approximately 7,000 people participating, many natives, many non-natives. There was different church groups, uh, civic groups, and people just bringing their families out to participate and uh, support the native communities. By the time the Commission's work ended, uh, almost seven years later, that we had established 
the credibility of the Commission, not only in the eyes of survivors, but in the eyes of the country. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission has brought an image of Canada forward that now includes this history. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation was created by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in order to preserve all of the materials that were collected under the mandate of the TRC. But more than just preserving these materials, survivors right across the country have asked us to ensure that their statements and the other material that was collected finds their way into the hands of educators, into the hands of researchers. So we have a very important and critical role in continuing to expose the truth, uh, ensure Canadians understand the truth of what's happened in this country, and further contribute to ongoing understanding, healing, and reconciliation in this country. Canadians no longer have an excuse, though, which I think is one of the most critical things about this process of truth and reconciliation. Uh, the I don't know, or I didn't know, really is no longer defensible. hopeful. I'm still a bit scared as to what's happening and what could continue to happen. I want to see action. I want less talk and more action so we all know that something is changing in terms of healing for the Native folk and for white and brown and yellow Canada. <laughs> expressing their, their culture and the good and genuine things about it. The color, the outfits, the, the dances, the songs.
when every residential school survivor is healed, I'll be healed. And that's, that's how it would affect me. Um, until they're healed, I won't be. And I'll keep talking to anybody who will listen. There's always hope. Without hope, we're done. You know, there always has to be hope. And when I look at my grandchildren, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of hope. I see positive things for them.
was adopted by a white missionary couple. I was adopted. Immediately placed for adoption. I was in foster care with um, one family for uh, 18 years. They were white. My parents loved us, and I understand that, but at the same time... They took the idea that um, they were saving me. Saving us. Um, from ourselves. Being saved and I should be grateful for the life that I've been given because any child on the reservation would give anything to live as I was living. They took us away from our mom. They came marching right in and literally took us and thousands of other children from their home. It's a way to er eradicate us and to go to a nation's children is one of the sure ways to do that. The U.S. has a long and brutal legacy of attempting to eradicate Native Americans. For centuries, they colonized Native American lands and murdered their populations. They forced them west and pushed them into small, confined patches of land. But Native Americans resisted. A Board of Indian Commissioners report said, instead of dying out under the light and contact of civilization, the Indian population is steadily increasing. And that was an obstacle to total American expansion. So the U.S. found a new solution to absorb and assimilate them. It all started with an experiment and a man named Richard Henry Pratt. He had in his charge some prisoners of war, and he taught these men how to speak English, how to read and write, and how to do labor. He dressed them in military uniforms and basically ran an, an assimilation experiment. And then he took his results to the federal government and said they're capable of being civilized. So he was able to get this project funded. In 1879, the government funded Pratt's project, the first ever off-reservation boarding school for Native American children. His motto was to kill the Indian and save the man. What started there at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was nothing short of genocide disguised as American education. Children were forcibly taken from reservations and placed into the school, hundreds, even thousands of miles away from their families. They were stripped of their traditional clothing. Their hair was cut short. They were given new names and forbidden from speaking their native languages to take our children and to indoctrinate them into Western society, to take away their identity as indigenous peoples, their tribal identity. I think it's one of the most effective and insidious ways that the U.S. did do harm to, to, to indigenous peoples here because it targeted our children, our most vulnerable and they tried to make us ashamed for being Indian, and they tried to make us something other than Indian. There are also accounts of mental, physical, and sexual abuse, of forced manual labor, neglect, starvation, and death. My great-grandfather went to Carlisle, and nobody in my family ever talked about it. So if you Google Indian boarding schools, the majority of the pictures that you will see will be actually from Carlisle. Colonel Pratt, created propaganda. 
he hired a photographer to create those before and after photos to show that his experiment was working. So it was, you know, intentional propaganda. And it worked. The Carlisle model of education swept the country and led to the creation of over 350 boarding schools to assimilate Native American children. On the one hand, we have the Navajo as we find him in the desert. Few of these boys and girls have ever seen a white man. Yet, through the agencies of the government, they are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. In 1900, there were about 20,000 Native American children in these schools. By 1925, that number more than tripled. Families that refused to send their kids to these schools faced consequences like incarceration at Alcatraz or the withholding of food rations. Some parents who did lose their children to these schools even camped outside to be close to them. Many students ran away. Some found ways to hold on to their languages and cultures. Others, though, could no longer communicate with family members. And some never returned home at all. By stripping the children of their Native American identities, the U.S. government had found a way to disconnect them from their lands. And that was part of the U.S. strategy. During the same era in which thousands of children were sent away to boarding schools, a number of U.S. policies infringed on their tribal lands back home. In less than five decades, two-thirds of Native American lands had been taken away. The whole thing was purposeful. And the fact that it has been buried in the history books and, and not acknowledged is also intentional. And in fact, the same tactics were used in New Zealand, Australia, Canada. All of these countries have acknowledged, apologized, or reconciled in some way, except for the United States. Over time, the brutality of boarding schools started to surface. And after a 1928 report detailed the horrific conditions at some schools, many began to close. In the 1960s, indigenous activism rose alongside the civil rights movement. And by the 1970s, that activism forced more schools to shut down. The government handed over control of the remaining boarding schools to tribes to be run in partnership with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But just as the boarding school era started fading, another assimilation project took shape, adoption. The main goal of this pilot project was to stimulate the adoption of American Indian children to primarily non-Indian adoptive homes. They claimed it was to promote the adoption of the forgotten child, but it was essentially a continuation of the boarding school assimilation tactics. And the strategy came with a financial advantage for the government too. Adoption was cheaper than running boarding schools. But first, adoption officials had to sell white America on the idea of adopting Native American children. Feature stories like this one in Good Housekeeping marketed them to white families. They were described as unwanted and adoption gave them a chance at new lives. In the end, their media campaign worked. White families wanted Indian adoption. But the problem was, many of these children were not orphans that nobody wanted. They were kids often ripped apart from families that wanted to keep them. You still will hear stories today of people, you know, my age, older, 
saying, I remember as a child, um, the social worker was coming and people would hide their children. On reservations, social workers used catch-all phrases like child neglect or unfit parenting as evidence for removal. But their criteria was often questionable. Some accounts describe children being taken away for living with too many family members in the same household. An extended family is a big thing for Native people. And that means being judged for being in a house that's overcrowded. So it's always whiteness is the standard for success. And everything else is judged by that standard. By the 1960s, about one in four Native children were living apart from their families. The official Indian Adoption Project placed 395 Native American children into mostly white homes. But it was just one of many in an era of Native American adoptions. Other state agencies and private religious organizations began increasingly making placements for Native American children, too. My mother giving me up was a white person telling her if she didn't, she would never see her other kids again. In one of the documents I have, it's addressed to my biological father, Victor Fox, that he was trying to look us up to get a hold of us. But Hennepin County wrote, Daniel and Douglas are adapting very well in their new family. This was totally, um, it was a false statement. When you're adopted, you know you're missing something. Um, I think I've likened it to having like, when someone has like a 500 piece puzzle and they have all the pieces to make this pretty picture except one. My adoptive mother was not well verbally, physically, and sexually, and, and spiritually abusive. So by the, by the time I was 14, I started drinking. 15 drugs were added and I became an addict to numb. I didn't realize I was numbing pain. I tried suicide, tried slicing my wrist one time. Children were taken and believed like I believed for a long time that there was something wrong with me versus something wrong with the system. The Indian Adoption Project was considered a success by the people who set it in motion. Officials claimed, generally speaking, we believe the Indian people have accepted the adoption of their children by Caucasian families and have been pleased to learn the protection afforded these children. But the truth was unsettling. These hearings on Indian children's welfare is now in session. Well, I was pregnant with Bobby and the welfare kept coming over there and asking me if I'd give him up for adoption. Before, you, before he was even born? Yeah. They picked up my children and placed them in a foster home. And uh, I think that they were abused in a foster home. Four years after Native people organized in this Senate hearing, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. It gives tribes a place at the table in court. States would be required to provide services to families to prevent removal of an Indian child. And in case removal was necessary, they would have to try to keep the child with extended family or another Native American family. Without our relatives, we cease to exist. So with Native people, part of our wealth 
is in our family. It's in who we're connected to. But the legacy of family separation in Native communities has been difficult to fully undo. Today, Native American children are four times more likely to be placed in foster care than white children, even when their families have similar presenting problems. In these cases, ICWA is often the best legal protection they have, and it's been under attack repeatedly. A young girl ripped from her foster family because of the Indian Children Welfare Act. White adoptive families intent on keeping Native American children have tried to do away with the act, and they're often backed by conservative organizations. The Indian Child Welfare Act was dealt a blow earlier this month. The subject of a lawsuit issued on Tuesday by the Goldwater Institute arguing that preferences given to American Indian families to adopt Indian children is unconstitutional and discriminates based on race. It's a, it's a way for these industries, um, these very powerful industries, to try to attack what Indian identity is. Wanting to overturn ICWA is connected to everything about who we are as a nation. So if we don't have any protections for our families, and if we don't have protections for our treaties, then we have um, no more Indians. We've been under attack, we're gonna continue to be under attack. And we have to keep, just keep fighting. It's in our DNA to survive. We are nations that pre-exist European contact, and we are still here.
of Good Studies. Pray for us. Our Lady of Good Studies. Pray for us. Our Lady of Good Studies. Pray for us. In the name of the Father. Not sure we'll ever get a final answer, but I'm absolutely convinced the number is much higher, perhaps as much as five to ten times as high as that. It's because the records are so poor. They just didn't bother keeping track of children who died. I think that's unacceptable. In my family, we lost two of my great uncles, and they died at residential school back in the 1910s. One of them didn't come home, and the other one did come home. He was very ill with tuberculosis, and he died very shortly after he came home. The two deaths had a great impact on my family. In fact, really changed, changed everything. My great-grandparents decided at that point that uh, they did not and were not willing to lose any more children. And so they ended up really running away, as the family story goes, in the middle of the night, running to Regina. At that point, there was a pass system, and you had to permission from the Indian agent uh, to, to leave your community, and anybody had the right to ask to see your pass if you were off reserve. So they really, when they, when they fled to Regina, they really had to lie low like they were illegal immigrants in their own country. I mean, my great-grandparents spoke their language perfectly, beautifully, um, spoke Cree, and um, and they were very deliberate in not passing that down to, um, to their children and in not passing that down to, to their grandchildren. They didn't want us to know the language uh, because they were so afraid. Our family went back to Brandon Residential School to, um, to just walk through it and to be there to try and do something small to honor, honor them, to honor their loss, um, just to walk where they had walked, to be where they had last, had last been. In the 1970s, uh, we understand that a group of girl guides were planting trees and ended up discovering uh, what was a grave, uh, a grave site, uh, a cemetery of sorts, but it was not marked. Part of the Indian's problem is in assimilating with the rest of the nation. So much horror and terror went on. When I think about the propaganda, um, it just, uh, it's, it's really, really painful when you know what actually occurred and when you know the impact in your family of what actually occurred and what you've lost because of it. News Magazine salutes Education Week with films of an Indian residential school. They learn not only games and traditions, but the mastery of words, which will open to them. A lot of that uh, public perception is bullshit. Oh, pardon my language, but I have a very strong feeling about the way we were portrayed. They don't, they don't they didn't portray us as, you know, hungry. 
are conniving, cold. I entered in 1948, and all through the 50s and part of, uh, I, I left in, in early part of 60. My mom was, and my dad and my grandparents were really very spiritual. They believed in the crea creator to a fault. And the fact that we lived in a, in a, in, at a time where we didn't have any uh, the amenities that we had, running water, electric lights, heat, electric heat. So my mom always thought in her head, my boy, my boy, you're going to have all these amenities, you're going to have a good life. So when the clergies came in, of course, that was the attitude of our parents. In, in spite of all what, what was her reasoning, we didn't know. The, all we knew was that we were incarcerated. And that first year, we didn't like our parents. We didn't like our grandparents. We didn't like our extended families because of what had been pounded into our heads that Indians were no good. We had no culture. We couldn't talk a sensible language. So that was the start of my indoctrination where they say, kill the Indian in a child. That's exactly what they were doing, killing. When you left the residential school, it was very, very isolated incidents where people would go back and live on reserve. We were gone. I didn't return for years and years. I was on the move. So because of that shame and that, you know, the reluctance to be able to relate, relate to a family. I started realizing why, why my mom, my mom allowed me to go into residential. I, I graduated at 32 from civil engineering. And as I was, I was coming down by the, by the, the uh, receiving my, my, my award was my mom against the wall. Right. I, I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I, I've, I've, tell, I've told this story before, but I think that's the most significant. That's the hardest thing to be able to realize, that my mom, almost a thousand miles away, I was graduated. I graduated in Alberta, and my mom was living in Fort Alexander, just north of Winnipeg here. Who should be sitting against the wall? On, on that day was my mom. Her goal of having me graduate, what she didn't even understand in the early years, as to graduate, she was sitting right there on my day of graduation. All the abuses I've suffered, everything that's happened through my life, do not compare to what I experienced that day. I shouldn't react the way I do with this, with this idea, but uh, I think my whole life, the whole purpose of why I got incarcerated, the whole reasoning sits on that scene. <laughs>
Doc. Hope you enjoyed another episode of Body Talk on Intertribal Radio. <laughs>